going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13 this morning. And what a time of joy it is to remember that God sent his son. He left the glories of heaven, became a man, became the God-man, took on human flesh. Oh, children are dismissed at this time for kids club <laughs> or whatever we call it <laughs> sorry about that I always forget that part but Jesus took on human flesh became a man so that he could pay the sin debt not only did he live a perfect, sinless life, having perfect righteousness, but he came to die. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. So we'll begin a little bit differently this morning than normally. With some questions. Do you live for a cause greater than yourself? Do you love Christ with all your heart? Would you lay down your life for the Lord if the situation demanded it? Do you love others more than yourself? Would you do without? to meet the needs of others, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you really living for the kingdom, the body of Christ? But that brings up a question. What enables a person to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow the Lord, to forsake everything, even their life? if need be, to follow the Lord. And to us, I think it's obvious. It's the experience of God's truth, His grace, His mercy, His love displayed in the glorious gospel. Really, it's the supernatural work of God in a person's heart. God does it. He's the one that changes us. He regenerates us and brings us into a relationship with us, with Him, and changes our very being, our very desires, our heart. If you truly know the Lord, or rather, if you're known by the Lord, you should be enraptured by his amazing love and ready to serve him and his church. Serving the king should be our greatest joy. The question for us this morning is, are we truly children of the king? Sadly, those who are not are children of the devil. The word of God is perfectly clear. I hope we all this morning understands what it really means to be separated from Christ. What it means to be condemned and awaiting God's righteous judgment. To be without God dead to God, separated from his favor, from his grace, from his mercy. 
not separated from his righteousness and holiness and judgment, but from his grace and mercy to be without hope. Those born into this world that have not yet to come to know the Lord are totally depraved. We talk about that a lot in this church, and we should. But it means to be totally corrupt, enslaved to sin, apart again from his grace, unable to choose to follow God, unable to fix our problem, unable to turn to Christ in faith for salvation, having a destiny that's eternal separation from God in a place called hell. Now, being totally depraved doesn't mean that we are as evil as a person can be. We can always find someone else that's more evil than we are. But in one sense, it means to be as bad off as you possibly can be. Everyone born into this world, until we are born again, are as bad off as we possibly can be. Because we have no hope of doing anything about our problem. So all men apart from Christ are totally depraved. In bondage to sin's grasp. And completely helpless to do anything about it. But I'm thankful this morning. That's not the end of the story. That's what it's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. But it doesn't stop with verse 3. Verse 4 begins with these words. But God. But God. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It was God and God alone that could do something about our problem and did do something about our problem. He did this by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating this time of the year, that he came. He took on human flesh. He emptied himself of his glory, his majesty, and became the God-man and bore our sins. That's what we're celebrating. He has made us, those of us that's been born again, alive together with Christ. He died on a cross as our substitute. He satisfied God's anger towards sin, toward the sinner. I'm glad this morning for the but God. But God sent his one and only son to reconcile us to, to him. To buy us back from the slave market of sin. He did this to call out a people for his name. Out of the world. That's ecclesia to be brought our saved out of the world to the praise of his glory to make a holy people for his name people that would honor him praise him worship him and serve him he created us in Christ Jesus for a purpose and we come to Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue that passage for just a moment this morning for by grace you have been saved through faith 
that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. We can't take any credit for our salvations because we could do nothing about it, but God did. God sent his son. And in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God created us to the praise of his glory, but he created us for a purpose. We are his workmanship. The word workmanship means a created thing or a thing made or a masterpiece. We are created in Christ Jesus for a new purpose. We are new creations in Christ. We've been created, it continues, for good works. New creations for a new purpose. It says, which God prepared beforehand. It's the idea of predestination. He predestined us that we should walk in them, to walk in the good works. To be prepared beforehand, again, is to predestine, to fit up beforehand or appoint before. And he predestined that we would walk in those good works. It should be a habit of life. It's our walk in them to be associated. We should be known for our good works as believers because our lives are changed for God's glory. We are to the praise of his glory. It's no longer about me. It's about him and what he has done for us, what he's done for me. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, predestined that we should be identified as those who practice good works. It's actually guaranteed for those that are truly in Christ to be those who do good works. He's equipped us for it. He's created us for it. That's our purpose. And again, not to receive glory ourselves, but to the praise of his glory. So what does it enables a person to forsake everything, even their very life, to follow the Lord, to live for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus? It's not a natural thing. It's supernatural. It's a work of God. Only God can take a person that's an enemy of God and transform them into the kingdom of God, change their hearts to where they want to serve him and his kingdom. The people of Judah did not have the blessings that we have today in Christ. They were looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah. Yet they as a people in Nehemiah were living for the kingdom. That was their purpose. Nehemiah is a book about people who sacrifice their livelihoods and even risk their lives for the kingdom. It's about a man who believed God, but put God's kingdom above everything else in his life. But most importantly, it's about God, who's always faithful to keep his promises. That's what Nehemiah is really about. It's about a faithful God that always keeps his word. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw Nehemiah was a man of the scriptures, a man of faith, and a man of prayer. Chapters 3 and 4, he exemplified 
a Christ-like viler. Yeah, as he led the people of Judah to rebuild the wall, he was violent, not violent. He had valor. That's what I'm trying to say. We saw the opposition they faced from their enemies. Their enemies used different tactics. First, they tried to ridicule through intimidating the people of Judah. They resorted then to threats when that didn't work, hoping to stop the building with the intent to actually attack the people of Judah. But the Jews prayed to God and set a guard for protection. And we talked about that last week. They prayed, they trusted God, but they set a guard. They were responsible to do what they should do in serving God, but ultimately they trusted God to protect them. So in chapter 5, we basically see Nehemiah living a wartime uh, lifestyle, we could say, on a millionaire's budget. That's the way it's been described. Because Nehemiah wasn't a man without resources. He had resources himself, as we'll see in this passage. But just as the people of Judah were facing war, we as believers are right in the middle of a spiritual battle. We're actually in Ephesians chapter 6 commanded to put on the full armor of God that we might be able to stand in the day. We know that we're to fight hard, but we also know that God is the one that will give us the victory. So we trust God and join the battle. We trust God and build the wall. We must be ready to sacrifice just like the people of Judah for the kingdom. Because the battle that we're in demands sacrifice. Interesting quote I found this week. John Piper calls the people to a war time lifestyle in his book. Calls people, I should say, to a wartime lifestyle. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Piper writes, in wartime, we spend money differently. Piper later writes, a $70,000 salary doesn't have to be accompanied by a $70,000 lifestyle. No matter how grateful we are, he writes, gold will not make the world think that our God is good. It will make people think that our God is gold. In Nehemiah 5, the people had sacrificed their fields and their vineyards to build a wall. And as a result of that sacrifice, or added to that, people were actually taking advantage of one another financially. And people were suffering because of it. This is Satan's third attack. Division in the body. Division here is caused by sin, as we will see. And there's a time to demand repentance. When sin is sin, when it's clearly laid out in the word of God. Division can be caused by all, all sorts of things, all kinds of sin. Selfishness, selfish ambition, unforgiveness an unwillingness to apologize. The list goes on and on. You know, when attacks come from within the church, that's the most dangerous. 
That's when Satan is often the most successful, is with attacks from within the kingdom. When they come from the outside, sometimes it actually solidifies us. It strengthens us. We rally together to deal with those attacks, just like the people of Judah. But when they come from within, it's a different ballgame altogether. Satan knows exactly what he's doing. We see this here, but we can see it in the church today sometimes. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. What are they talking about? Verse 2. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, verse 3, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Verse 5, now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers. Our children are like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So there was an outcry against some of the Jewish leadership. The people were saying there's not enough grain for the people. They had obviously sacrificed working their fields and their vineyards so that they could build the wall and they could protect the building of the wall. Some had mortgaged their fields to get enough grain to eat. They were actually borrowing, borrowing money or mortgaging, borrowing money on their fields and their vineyards for the king's tax. While their farming had suffered, the tax had not been suspended. They were still expected to pay the same, even though they were not making what they would normally make off of their fields and vineyards. And the leaders were likely collecting the tax for the king and getting a portion of it. I strongly suspect that's what's happening here. So the people became slaves to their leaders. Their children had become slaves. And even their daughters, putting them in a vulnerable situation. Look at verse 6. Then I was very angry, Nehemiah says, when I heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are extracting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. The leaders of Judah were the ones he held responsible for taxing the people. The land had not been used to its potential, but the people were still having to pay the same tax. Nehemiah was angry. He says, I consulted with myself. But that phrase is very hard from the Hebrew to translate. Some translations say, I mastered my feelings. And I suspect that might be it, just based on the context alone. Because he is so angry. 
he had to control his feelings in dealing with this situation. Not only does he have to master his feelings, it says, and contended with the nobles and rulers. And the word contend means to strive or to make a legal case. He's striving with them. He's making an argument or a legal case with the nobles and these rulers. So Nehemiah takes action here, doesn't he? He deals. The people are being mistreated. They're put in a vulnerable situation, and he begins to deal with it. He says, you are extracting usury, each from his brother. Why would Nehemiah say the obvious? I mean, yes, they're extracting usury. They're charging them taxes. They're taking advantage. Why does he state the obvious? They knew they were extracting usury or taxes. Why would he make a legal legal case? They knew what they were doing was wrong. They clearly knew it. Because God had given the children of Israel a regulation as far as taxing their own people. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 19 and 20, they were very familiar with this, or at least should have been. Verse 19, and you shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be, may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen, you shall not charge interest so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you're about to enter, to possess. Before they even entered the land, God gave them this instruction. So they were forbidden to charge interest to one another, the children of Abraham. If they did, they would not be blessed in their endeavors. God would not bless them if they did. That's how they were to treat one another, to loan but not charge interest. So notice what Nehemiah does. It said in verse 7, I held a great assembly against them. What is he doing? He held their feet to the fire, so to speak. He holds them responsible. He confronts them. Look at verse 8. And I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. I like that. They had no answer. They knew that they were in the wrong. They knew that they were breaking God's law. Look at verse 9. And again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. It's not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? For Judah to be in contempt in the eyes of the other nations was to bring God in contempt. They weren't representing the God of Israel by doing what they were doing. They were doing wrong. They were not a testimony for God. These were God's chosen people. The people of Judah were to represent God. They were to be holy like God is holy. 
God had actually told them back in Isaiah chapter 42, they were to be a light to the nations, to the Gentile nations. They were to represent God to the world around them. They were not doing that at this point. They were taking advantage of one another. And even beyond that, they were breaking God's old covenant. Verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are leading them, lending them money and grain. Let us abandon, abandon this extracting of interest. Nehemiah and some of his clan were lending money and grain. He was trying to take care of the people in light of this terrible situation. Nehemiah was benevolent. He cared for the people. He did not want to see them suffer. So he says, let us abandon this exacting of interest. This tax of the people was affecting the people, def definitely. But in an indirect sense, it's affecting Nehemiah as well. Because he's having to help them so that they're not starving to death. This situation had created a famine. You know, we really don't know that there was any kind of a, what we would call a famine today going on in the land. I don't know of any historical evidence that points to that. But they were famished or in famine because of the circumstance. Because they had sacrificed their fields to build a wall. They put the kingdom of God first. Look at Nehemiah 5.11. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and all that you have been extracting from them. Do it now. Do it this very day. This is the command. Nehemiah is not playing around. He says what is right, and he demands what is right here. Nehemiah did not just demand that they stop taking advantage, but that they return what they had taken away unrighteously. Look at verse 12. Then he said, we will give it back. Then they said, excuse me, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say, Nehemiah. So Nehemiah says, I called the priest and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. We definitely see leadership here from Nehemiah, don't we? A man of God that's doing what's right. And it's actually what's best for the people all around. The leaders repented. Nehemiah did not have to give a doctrinal dissertation to get them to stop extracting taxes. They already knew the case. They knew the word of God. They knew their responsibility. They had probably been making excuses to break God's law. That's what we do sometimes. We know what's right, but we make excuses to do what we want to do. We justify our behavior. And I would not be surprised if they were doing the very same thing that's common among us today. It's very tempting sometimes to make excuses to do what we really want to do. But who are we serving? Ourselves or the King of Kings? That's the question. 
Today, we're not under the Old Covenant. The Bible refers to the Old Covenant as have, ha, that it has been rendered obsolete. Praise be to God. We're living in a day that the prophets look forward to. The New Covenant. Where the law would be written on man's heart. We wouldn't need a list of Ten Commandments to serve God because the law is written. God's standard is written on our heart. He changed our desires, in other words, that we might live for Him. Today, when we simply walk in the Spirit, the Spirit of God, we do not fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We serve God. The old nature desires to please self. And ultimately, folks, that is destructive. It might look good. There is pleasure in sin for a season. But ultimately, it's destructive. God knows what's best for you and I. The old nature desires to please self. But the new nature desires to please God. I'm glad for the new nature. Because I know where the old nature was getting me. It's destructive. So today, if we're not under the old covenant that prevented people from taking advantage of one another as children of God, how much more should we, with God living in our hearts, honor our brothers and sisters in Christ? Esteeming others better than ourselves. That's what the scripture says. The early Christians not only did not take advantage of one another. They had all things in common. In Acts chapter 2. Listen to verse 44 through 47. A very convicting passage. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Koinonia. Fellowship. All things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all. As anyone might have need. Day by day, continually, with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They had all things in common. They sacrificed to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters. What a testimony of God's grace. All today that we might so fall in love with God because of what he's done for us. That our possessions, that everything we have means nothing to us. And we would much rather, because of changed hearts, help one another. Especially Believers, but all men. That's what God has called us to do. 
to love one another as he has loved us. What a testimony of a changed heart. But sadly today, many professing Christians have this attitude. Well, it's mine. I work for it. It's not mine. It's God's. Everything we have is God's. But God, in his grace, has entrusted the blessings of this life to us. This is a part of, this is God's common grace. And we have all these blessings. And we're so blessed here in this country. How can we not help one another in the body of Christ? So the question for me, do I really love God with all my heart? all my soul, all my strength, and all my might? And do I really love my neighbor as myself? That's the evidence of the new birth. That's God's law for today. Because God has given us a new heart. As a result of what happened in Acts 2, we just read it. Notice what happened. And the Lord was adding to the number day by day those who were being saved. Makes me think of John 13. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. He wasn't talking about a warm feeling. He was talking about agape love. Like the first Christians loved one another. That's love. That's what it means to love God. Under the old covenant, the people were not encouraged to sell everything to help one another. They were only demanded not to take advantage of one another, not charge taxes to a brother. That was forbidden under the law. So when Nehemiah confronted the leaders, what did they do? They repented. Verse 13, Nehemiah said, I shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even those, excuse me, even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. The people did according to this promise. Nehemiah knows here that the promise to repent is one thing, but following through is quite another. And he uses a symbolic gesture by shaking out the front of his garment and said, may God shake out every man from his house, his possessions, who does not fulfill this promise. If you do not keep your promise, it's really... It's like the equivalent of lagos in the Hebrew. It's the word word. If you not keep your word, may God take away your possessions. Our word should mean everything as believers. Jesus said, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Our word should be our bond. The words of Ananias and Sapphira were so important that God took their lives 
for misrepresenting the funds that they had received for the sale of their house or their land, excuse me, in Acts chapter 5. They had given their word that they were selling their possessions to meet the needs of others for God's kingdom. But they held back. They didn't give the whole amount and God judged them. Here in Nehemiah, they would also face judgment for not keeping their word. They said, Amen. Or so be it, in other words. They agreed with Nehemiah. They were supporting what Nehemiah said. They had, were demonstrating that they had repented. But it was important that they followed through. But when you obey God, when you truly repent by God's power and serve Him and put Him first, it brings praise to our hearts. It says, and they praised the Lord, and the people did according to this promise. They praised the Lord. This time, the word for Lord is Yahweh. Yah or Yahweh. It's the to be word. It's I am. Like Jesus said, I am. He is the I am. The eternal self-existent one. And that's, there's a lot more to that word than just that, Yahweh. But that's sort of the synopsis. The people did according to their promise. They kept their word, their word, and our word should be trustworthy. So what's the lessons here? Beware of division in the church. It's one of Satan's greatest tools. When Satan attacks from the outside, it often unifies the church. But when he attacks from the inside, it divides. It's very dangerous. If we do not obey the Lord, if we do not repent, so be quick to apologize, quick to forgive, quick to repent. The answer to prevent or correct divisions is still the same. It's repentance. It's continual repentance. It's daily repentance. But most importantly, today, we have the very Spirit of God. God living in us. And Paul wrote, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 Obviously, we should never take advantage of one another. I don't think we should profit from one another as believers. That's my conviction. Especially if it causes somebody else to suffer. But more than that, should we not be willing to sacrifice for the kingdom of God? The people of Judah sacrificed. They gave up farming and their orchards, at least caring for them as they normally would, to build a wall. They did it for the kingdom. How much more should we sacrifice for the kingdom of God? Sacrifice to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came on the scene in the book of Matthew, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, preaching repentance. We are to re 
proclaim today the gospel of the kingdom. Back in school, I had to read a book in Bible college that affected me tremendously. It was the story of a man named Jim Elliott and four other missionaries that had gone to the Aqua Indians of Ecuador. And I remember the story of them flying around and lowering a rope from the airplane. Nate Saint was the pilot and they would drop gifts to these people that were so remote and so tribal and had no contact with the outside world and hardly ever any contact with the outside world. They were known as a dangerous people and they tried to build a relationship and then they went in and they landed on that sandbar and those five men were speared to death. And Life Magazine ran a 10-page article about what happened to those five missionary men. You know what the world said? What a waste. That was just foolishness. That was the response of most of the world. But Jim Elliott's wife, who, by the way, later went back in and reached the very man that killed her husband with the gospel of Jesus. She wrote a book in response to what the world was saying, called Through Gates of Splendor. And in that book, she quoted her husband in one of his journals. And this was the quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot know. How can we really serve the kingdom and the king of the kingdom? It's the power of God in us. We're not under the old covenant. Folks, we're under the new. God lives in us. Can we, with all our hearts, serve God? Can we serve the kingdom, the very body of Christ, serving one another, taking the gospel to a lost and dying world? There's people all around us. One of the greatest mission fields in all the world is right here. And we should give our lives to take the gospel to those people around us, serving one another loving one another, sacrificing for one another, because that's how all men will know that you're his disciples, if you have love one for another. Let's pray.